Oh, man, you just better be ready, because old Dad is ready tonight. I'll tell you, you know, just some night you just arrived. Just as hairy as uh, you can be, man. And uh, Oh, look, I stand back, stand back. Can't you just feel pure animal vitality radiating through that miserable three-inch Japanese loudspeaker you got there, huh? Vibrant, vibrant. Bring it up there, big Herbert. Yeah. <laughs> the captain is here, by God. This is a historic day. Yes, sir. On July the 7th, once when I was a kid, I remember it vividly because, uh, you know, the, your dates stick in your mind, man. Who can forget? Uh, 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 oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. Who can forget uh, 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 all this, some harbor or something day? Uh, uh, who can forget? Uh, who, yeah, who can forget Pearl Harbor Day? December 3rd, 1941. Who can forget it? I mean, there are certain dates that are just emblazoned on your mind. Like, for example, uh, the the year that uh, 1496 is the year that Columbus discovered America. There are certain dates you cannot forget. And uh, July 7th was a day that my old man received after, you know, some guys have got a lifetime ambition to own a Ferrari, you know. Other guys have got a lifetime ambition to uh, meet Sophia Loren. I mean, it's kind of connected with Ferrari, you know, same same kind of thing, very high octane, very dangerous, too. Oh, yeah. Ferrari's a great thing to look at, but I don't know whether she should own one. I mean... (laughs) And then other guys have got, the, you know, have got the idea in their craw someplace to own a Ferrari and to meet Sophia Loren. Then there's other guys who say, the hell with the Ferrari, and uh, they, they're, <laughs> they want to do a little more than meet uh, Sophia Loren. Of course, these are the, these are the overreachers. These are, they're always with us all the time. And uh, these are guys that just as likely as not to walk right into a wearing blender, whistling Dixie, and come out beautifully blended with some radish cream, a few little uh, pears, and make them into a nice puree. However, uh, July the 7th marks the day that my father achieved his great life ambition. His ambition was not to own a Ferrari, or an Isata Fraccini, or to bowl seven 300 games in succession, or to meet Luke Appling, the the, uh, famous Chicago White Sox shortstop. It was to own an E.H. Scott DH-16 receiver, radio set. Did you ever hear of that? You never heard of an E.H. Scott? Well, that was the Ferrari of the radio world. And the old man on July the 7th received a Ferrari of the radio world. He, uh, he had made his down payment, and six weeks later, on July the 7th, in 1823, this magnificent radio set was, was delivered into the front uh, yard of our house by a big truck. 
And these two gorilla types, you know, lo- unloaded it. Bye, you know, get it out of here, kid. And they throw it out in the yard. And the old man comes home from work, and he brings the receiver into the house, you know, with about nine guys, and they open it up. And here is this magnificent radio set, which my old man had always wanted all of his life to own. An E.H. Scott. Did you ever hear of an E.H. Scott radio set? You didn't. Well, nobody else did, but the old man did. And uh, it was supposed to be a fantastic radio. And it had short wave, long wave, medium wave, sonar. Had an airplane dial on it that looked like the... It really did. It looked like the control panel of a 747. You know, everything going there. And the old man was all excited. He put up an antenna. He'd had this antenna for weeks. You know the excitement of, of plugging in and hooking up new equipment? Well, that often doesn't work out exactly the way you had thought it would. He plugged the thing in, and Mr. Selke and Heine Gertz and Zudok and the whole crowd were standing around. He fires this thing up, turns the switch on, and the lights light up, you know, blue, green, purple, red for international shortwave, you know. And they had, had one of these dials, you know, with these, all these fantastic places marked on it. You know, you, all you can do is tune to that number and you get Reykjavik. <laughs> you know, they have a little, it says Madrid, it says uh, Zamboanga at 21.7 meters. Uh, places like, uh, you know, Madagascar, eight different signals, you know, come from Madagascar. He plugs it in, sits there, turns up the gain. Nothing. And after about 10 minutes, he's looking at it real discouraged, throwing all the knobs, reading the book. It starts to go a deep, low, rich, 110 cycle, 60 cycle, 110 volt hum coming out of its 15 inch Jensen matching loudspeaker, which, by the way, was in the Notre Dame Cathedral High Boy model cabinet. It's a fantastic cabinet. Had gargoyles all over it. You know, you've seen these wild cabinets with doors that fold back and a whole bit. See? And when a 16-inch Jensen speaker is giving you 110-volt, 60-cycle hum, it can roughly be heard, believe me, in Olathe, Kansas. You can just feel it right down in your gut. And way in the background of that hum, you can hear a radio signal faintly. It's going, oh, no. Right from the instant, it ain't working. The old man flipped. He said words which even to this day I've not heard yet again. Oh, yeah, you, you guys think you've heard all the swear words? You have not. You've not. There are swear words that only the true artist in, in uh, cursing knows. And the old man, of course, he was, uh, he was like the E-power bigs of the four-letter word. He had a vocabulary, and what he had more than anything else was timing, Herb. He had timing and taste. He knew when to use a word, and the unused word is even more effective quite often than the used word. And he just sat there for about five minutes. He just... He, he, Gertz, who was a magnificent dirty joke teller, and also a pretty good man with a four-letter word, Gertz just stood there with his jaw hanging open. The old man just let it flow, you know, like a rich, deep, uh, a, a kind of molten lava river flow of human passion and anger, disgust, disappointment. And two days later, the E.H. Scott serviceman showed up. 
And uh, the guy looked at the old man and says, what's the matter? And the old man says, oh. And he went on for, again for about five minutes. The guy says, wait a minute, let's take a look here. Just, uh, just a minute here. And, of course, by this time, everybody had been moved out of the house. The house was uh, off limits to human beings. The old man, you know, was staying up to 4 o'clock in the morning, turning this thing off and on, hoping he can catch it by surprise. You know, if he catches it real quick, it'll work, see? But it didn't. In fact, the home is getting louder, if anything. And, uh, you know, the old man's really bugged by this time. And uh, all of us had been moved. We were moved to my grandmother's house. My brother and my kid brother were staying down at my grandmother's. My mother had moved to uh, to Cedar Lake, a uh, summer cottage that she uh, with Mrs. Selke, and they you know, get out of the house. And so the old man on the third day, uh, the, the, the serviceman arrived. He walked in. And uh, we were back home. We, it was a visiting day, see. And the old man was bugged. He hadn't shaved in three days. He hadn't gone to work. His eyes were bloodshot. I mean, you know. He was really bad, in a bad bad way. You could see empty beer cans all over the kitchen, the whole bit. And he'd been sitting around in his underwear mad. You, know, you could see where he'd been eating spam out of a can. You know, it's all mad. And, uh, oh, yeah, you know, he gave up. And, well, I just wonder how many guys have traumatic experiences with equipment they buy. You know, like all of your life, you hope you, get, you can buy this Maserati. And you get the Maserati, and it turns out it's got a transmission made out of spaghetti. You know, or, or pasta, the, the, the differential. Five minutes later, it's a $900 repair bill. And, oh, you know, makes that sound all the time. And the brakes chatter. Well, anyway, the serviceman walked in. And, of course, all of us were scared. We thought the old man would kill him, you know. And a uh, very cool-looking guy. And he's got this big case full of stuff. You got a volt ohm meter, you know, that weighed 40 pounds. Test prods. He had a signal generator. He had... You know, all kinds of square wave generator, Hewlett Packard, he had everything with him, you know. And he had this cool look, and he walks in, he says, uh, what is the trouble? And the old man says, what is the trouble? What's the trouble? Turn that thing on. Just turn it on. And with that, the serviceman just goes on, and he calmly switches the switch on. <laughs> Starts to hum. <laughs> he laughs, oh, he says, my God, why do they sell these to such stupid people? And the old man, you know, it's purple. And because uh, the old man had the, had created this myth around the house, you know, he knew all about radio. You know, there's a there's a certain type of male who creates the myth around him that he's with it. You know, he knows about cars. Take old Fred, you know, and he'll look at the car for you when you're going to buy a used car. He'll look at it. You see him say they put the hood up. He walks around. He wiggles the air cleaner on the top, you know, and looks down and says, "Oh yeah, it's a very good." Uh, it's a very good oil filter there, and he's pointing to the generator, you know, that kind of thing. So, uh, anyway, the old man had created the atmosphere in the house, and he knew all about radio, see? And uh, the, this uh, serviceman says, oh, gee, he says, they, they should send the, somebody out to, to install it for you. So he says, look, he said, see, uh, the, the, the cap of the 57 detector tube is off here. See, see this little cap that fits on the top? You just push it down, and it'll work fine. And you know the little cap on the top, the, the, the grid cap on it? He just reaches back there, and he just goes, boom! And instantly, you know, instantly, in comes Rome, you know, instantly. Instantly, 5,000 watts of audio come in, you know, and we're getting direct from uh, Cecilia, you know, we're getting Palmetto. And the old man flips. Of course, you see, uh, it, was, it was a Pyrrhic victory. On the one hand, his Scott, which was the love of his life, was working. On the other hand, never again 
could he say around the house, you know, just uh, call me and I'll fix your radio for you. He was the laughing stock of the entire neighborhood. He didn't... <laughs> but uh, that Scott, July 7th, I remember it vividly. And uh, I'll tell you what, tonight I'm going to ask a question. Does anybody know, and this is for pure sentimentality's sake, because there are 529,468 billion radios at this day and age that work better than the E.H. Scott of that period, but uh, does anybody know where I can lay my hands on an old E.H. Scott DX-16 or DX-10 or DX-23. Does anybody know? In working condition. An old DX E.H. Scott. I will install it in my office. And every July 7th, say, I will turn it on. And we will listen to Palermo briefly. Huh? <laughs> yeah, thank you. Seriously, reset that. I'm going to use that. Uh, reset that, uh, Herb. This is uh, WOR in New York. If you think you're listening to DX for edit, it's just that we got a bad signal. This is WOR in New York. Old fun city here. And we got to have a little bippy or two here. Do you have the uh, uh, open the money, Luis, here? Here it comes down the mountainside. Rich and beautiful and green. Yeah. Hey, all you have to do to like it is try it. Yeah, don't you hear? <laughs> All right, let's have the next one on your little list here. Effective immediately, Ford's new Torino is up to $200 less than anything else its size. Take Ford's suggested retail price for its newest low-priced Torino and stack it up against a manufacturer's suggested retail price for a comparably equipped Chevelle. Torino is $112 less. Put the same Torino smack up against Belvedere. Torino is $143 less on the same basis. And that same Torino is up to $200 less than anything else its size. But hold on a minute. Wasn't Torino voted Motor Trend Magazine's Car of the Year against the same competition? <laughs> You bet it was. Torino beat them on style and performance, and now Torino beats them on price. Prices will never be this low again, so come on, see your Ford dealer now. Torino. Hey, does anybody know what that means in Italian? It sounds like an Italian word, doesn't it? Torino. Or is that one of those uh, nonsensical, fake uh, uh, foreign words that uh, some kind of a commuter... You know, the computers turn out fake words. Did you know that? You can set your computer, and, uh, you know, one of the big problems today is uh, labeling things. Remember when they had this tremendous uh, contest to uh, name? Hey, listen, that, that reminds me. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you a question tonight. Uh, speaking of car cuckoos, two cars that I remember had giant national contests to name them. To name the car. In other words, there was a new car being brought out, and two two of them that I remember had these enormous, you know, national contests to name the car. And uh, do do you remember what the names were? What were they? What cars were they? And uh, I'll give you one very strong clue. Neither one of them is still with us, <laughs> which is a lesson. <laughs> don't let the public name. Don't let the public anything to do with what you're doing. You'll die. Uh, I'm just curious, do, do any of you remember two cars that were named by public voting? And uh, what were the two cars? And as far as I remember, one car did and was named by the public. In other words, somebody actually suggested the name, and uh, they gave him a prize. They gave him a new car and all that stuff. But the other one, they got about 28 million names, and they didn't like any of them, and they finally wound up by picking their own name. <laughs> which was a terrible mistake. And one clue I will give you, it was not the Falcon. No. <laughs> what were these two? Why do I remember this junk? Why do I remember this junk? You know, it's the bad news. You know, speaking of uh, of, the, of naming things, you know that uh, computers, you see, uh, today they, they, they have a type of computer, or you can program a computer so that it, it uh, creates artificial words. And uh, drug companies, for example, they uh, they will have uh, you know a new product coming up like uh, Flamagen or something. Say, you know, the Flamagen with DX9, the uh, separate fragment and uh, they'll they'll uh, feed all this jazz into it, and these this thing will turn out like 2,500 uh, fake words, like Clavinen, uh like Krypton D. Uh, yeah, it'll turn out great-sounding names, thousands of them, and they're all fake names. They have nothing to do with anything real. And uh, they're just artificially created words, and then they pick one of these, and, and that's the name of the new drug. Well, they also do this with cars. And uh, that's why so many cars have these names, which don't really have any real meaning in, in languages, but they sound like they do. You know, Torino. Uh, <laughs> it's a you know, great-sounding name. But if you ask anybody what a Torino is and where is a Torino, it may turn out to be a soup Torino or something. It has nothing to do with cars. But uh, the machine that turned out this name just thought it would be a great name for a car, you know? Camaro. You remember what the big excitement about Camaro? Well, you know what Camaro means? Camaro is a word. It's a. Well, I'm not, I'm going, to, I'm not going to stir up the commotion again. But uh, it, uh, it had problems. Now, listen. You know, speaking of uh, of the car and uh, our time, uh, I don't know whether this is a coincidence, but a couple of weeks ago, you know, we talked about bluebird. Remember, about the I'm, I'm one of the first guys who who can't stand bluebirds. Yeah, well, you know, my mother had this record, see, and I I think we're we're all the products of uh, of what we were. And don't think for for any minute Shepard is sitting around here being nostalgic about when he was a kid. I just think that that we are the products of what we were when we were a kid. I imagine the young Dick Nixon was exactly the way he is now. Yeah, you know, I just see him, uh, second man on the debating team. He's the one that compiles the, uh, you know, the dry facts. And uh, the first man on the debating team was probably a real, you know, flamboyant type, you know, who later went in and became a uh, pitch man on the boardwalk. And, and, uh, but uh, uh, Dick Nixon, he was the anchor man, you know, the, the, the really sound, solid uh, uh, 
Uh, you know the kind of guy. He's uh, always the one who says, all right, you, all you guys can go ahead and you can edit the, the uh, literary magazine and all that stuff. Uh, I mean, but remember this. There's somebody has to do the, the, uh, the thankless tasks, like going out and selling the ads. And I will sell the ads for the literary magazine. You know, I could <laughs> just see him. There's always a guy like that. And uh, now, what about, the, what about uh, you know, this, this uh, Bluebird thing? Well, I'll tell you this. My mother had this record. She would always put on the record player. It had a Sears Roebuck, a Sears Tone record player. It had a big, you know, big crystal arm sticking out. And uh, she'd plug this thing all the time. And on would come this guy. Now, I don't know who it is who recorded this record, but he was always singing, Oh, Bluebird of Happiness. And a high, loud voice, and she would sit there, and she's listening to Bluebird Happiness. And I'd say, Hey, Ma, you know, bluebirds, they're not a good bird, really, you know? And she said, I, why do you, she says, what are you? See, if, if you know, if it had been today, she'd have said, you know, it's so sad that my son is turning into a hippie. She'd say, why, why, that's a beautiful thing. That, that's just beautiful. Because my mother, like all people of her generation, believed in bluebirds, Bing Crosby, Sonia Henney. Yeah, she believed in Sonia Henney, you know. <laughs> the way people of today's generation believe in Joan Baez. You know, she thought Sonia Henney was so pure and beautiful and all that, you know. It brought nothing but truth to the lives of, you know, all those people. And uh, I see that I'm not alone. A determined group of pigeon lovers gave the bird to the legislature. This is the New York legislature. I'm finally behind them. Uh, yesterday, for quote, the arrogance of upstate politicians in making the bluebird the official feathered thing of New York State. Did you know that we are now officially the bluebird state? <laughs> City residents against bluebirds. That's a great sounding, uh, you know, that's a de facto committee, you know, in an ad hoc committee. The uh, city residents against bluebirds wired Governor Rockefeller to veto the bluebird bill and ask a statewide referendum on the issue of selecting a state bird. The organization demanded that the bird, quote, be vetoed or at least pigeonholed. According to the group, bluebirds, quote, are predatory animals. They're predatory animals that victimize lesser prey. Most city residents have never even seen one. And two, quote, rural-oriented states, Idaho and Missouri, long ago had adopted it as their official bird. What the heck's New York got it? It says, the pigeon, and we quote here, we feel is the only representative bird for the harassed urban dweller. The organization wired Rockefeller. Yeah, but I must point out that New York is not only urban, you know, friends. <laughs> Although New York City people like to believe that, you know. All that real estate out there is just a place for New Yorkers to go on the weekend. Quote, its uh, population in a crisis-ridden city has grown in recent years, proving that this brave bird, the pigeon, can endure and flourish in the worst of all possible environments, New York City. Well, now I'd like to propose here tonight a compromise, and I think one that all of you would like. I would like to have our state, New York State, which I'm very proud of. There's no, I mean, we we got such a groovy state. I mean, it's such a great state, you know. We're first in so many things, like a cost of living, and uh, like uh, like taxes, and you know, we got so many great things. That, you know, like most slums and all. We we I think we've got a lot going for us here, and uh, we're first. You know, we're a firster state. So why don't we be the first in the in America? to make one of two birds the official bird of the state of New York. I mean, that can fit in all categories. 
I would like to suggest the common garden variety starling. Because the, uh, believe me, the, the, uh, uh, the simple native of the field who lives up in the Adirondack neighborhood, he knows the starling well and loves him. And, and what, what resident of 125th Street hasn't been bombed by six million starlings at twilight? Of course. And the starling, I think, uh, I think the trouble why we're having so much problems with starlings is that we fight them. I mean, a starling is a perverse bird, and, and uh, we fight him all the time, so naturally he's going to give us the you-know-what every time he can. Now, if we give him a little credit, make him the state bird, and bring him into us, you know, integrate him, bring him in with us, make him work for a bigger and a better New York state, well, then I suspect that we could be on the way to at last final civilization, when you really work with things. Now, the other bird that I briefly thought of, uh, it was a little impractical, but I kind of thought we could really cause a lot of excitement if we made the vulture our national bird, or, you know, our, our uh, state bird. Because after all, New York is a state that leads in one quality, which all the other states uh, just don't have, and it's uh, chutzpah. I mean, and, and what bird has got more chutzpah than the vulture? He knows where it is. You know, he doesn't, no, no sentiment about a vulture. He's a straightforward bird. You can know, you know where you stand. As a matter of fact, tonight I was listening to the ball game, speaking of New York, and uh, they're broadcasting from Baltimore, see? It's the Yankee game. And Phil Rizzuto is talking to Frank Messer or somebody, see? And the, he says, oh, boy, he said, holy cow, is this town really hipped up for the, uh, man, it's like World Series here. He says, driving in, he said, I hear all these guys on the radio putting the whammy on the Yankees. He says, they're going to be, they're going to try to beat us uh, four straight or three straight. Wow. Holy smokes. And with that, uh, the other guy says, well, yeah, Phil, did you hear uh, Jack Lacey, who used to be in New York radio? He's on here in Baltimore, and you should have heard him really giving the Yankees the business. And there's a pregnant pause, and Phil said, who? And uh, <laughs> with that, the other guy says, Jack Lacey, he used to be on here. As a matter of fact, Jack Lacey used to be on the radio station. On, he was on in the afternoon before the games that you played. He used to be on. Oh, he says, well, I know what's bugging him. He's, he's been sent down to the minors. He's in Baltimore now. <laughs> There's a pregnant pause. It says, Any, he says, any time you're outside of New York City, you're camping out. So, I mean, let's, uh, <laughs> so let's face it, you know. And I think New York is a big enough state. We don't need a sickening bird like the bluebird. It's a silly bird. I mean, that's a, you know, ridiculous bird. I, I agree with that. That's a silly. Our legislature is really getting out of hand. I mean, bluebird. I wonder who suggested that. I'd like to, you know, bring him up here and, and try to explain this to us. I mean, first of all, how many of you have ever seen a bluebird? That's right. Bluebirds are damn rare, as a matter of fact. I mean, not many of them around. And what are around are pretty bad, uh, real bad bippies in the neighborhood there. But the, there's no bluebirds, and most of them, you can't find them around. You don't see them in the Bronx often. I mean, if you do, be careful. He's working a scene. And uh, I just tell you that, uh, that the bluebird is not a representative state. You know that Franklin, uh, Benjamin Franklin had this hang-up, too. Yeah, well, they, they, you know, when they were they were trying to figure out what's going to be the national bird, you know, everybody's sitting around there plumping for the eagle. He says, the eagle, you're out of your mind. He says, eagle, what do you mean eagle? He says, eagle, you know, that's a bad bird. That's a bird of prey, man. It goes out there and it just tears everything up, you know. 
And everybody wanted the eagle. See, and he says, I'll tell you what we ought to have is our national bird. And he was pretty close. You got to hand it to Franklin. He knew, you know, this guy knew where it was. He was right on, man. And uh, in a lot of ways, you, you probably read the letters that Franklin wrote back when he was in France, when he was the ambassador there. Oh, let me tell you, the Frenchmen are still mad at Americans for that, you know? I mean, that's one of the basic reasons Frenchmen hate Americans, because that guy came over there and showed them how. I mean, in the very league that they thought they were number one in, man. <laughs> you heard about him, didn't you? He was, you know, that, I guess it was that grandfatherly look he had, you know? And uh, nobody suspected him of anything. See, the next thing you know, he's up there showing his chick his etchings and, yo, man, you know, and his Chippendales and all that stuff, you know. And, uh, you know, this old guy. But anyway, you know what bird he was plumping for? No, not the crow. Crying out loud. You're, the trouble is you've been hanging around Wingate too much. That's the kind of thing he'd say. Now, come on, we're trying to stick with historical reasoning here. What was it? What was? Did anybody call about E.H. Scott? Come on, you guys. Shepard is going to have an E.H. I'll give it a good home. I'll polish it up, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll put a little plaque with your name over it. I'll say, this listener, uh, Charles W. C. Strunk of 1422 and a half Clutch Road, Pack, New Jersey, rose above the muck and the mire of ordinary listenerdom and contributed this E.H. Scott to the Shepherd Museum of American Trivia. And uh, we'll get it working and play it, you know, make everybody mad around here. See, and, and if we could get one that has a null at 710, there's a can't get anything else, so I'm sitting in my, you know, can't get W.R.I.C., so I'm sitting in my office there. Every time I turn it on, in comes uh, Herb Oscar Anderson or some, you know, big talent like that. And, uh, <laughs> oh, man, you know. But, uh, oh, yes, there's all kinds of ways of being subversive. But uh, nevertheless, oh, yeah, did you hear about the guy that, uh, the first guy a couple years ago uh, out in Detroit, you know, they have this big parking lot where all the guys work at a General Motors plant. And the first guy that did it, he drove into the big parking lot out there with his very own, and he was on the assembly line with his very own VW. And, uh, man, I'll tell you, <laughs> did you hear about that? Whoo! Oh yeah, there's a lot of yelling about that. Another E.H. Scott. Now come on, tell it. Did you get what models they are? Well, I want all of you to write. Anybody who's got an E.H. Scott or knows where I can get one, write to me here, and uh, get the model number. You know the whole. Get get the information on it, and we'll carry from that. Don't just call it. Yeah, I know what is one. Uh, oh no, I, that's the H.H. H. Scott. It's E.H. E.H. Scott, not H.H., E.H., two separate companies. So don't confuse the two. E.H., not H.H., E.H., Scott. Ravenswood Avenue. They were built on Ravenswood Avenue in Chicago. And uh, it's uh, not H.H. But nevertheless, uh, you don't know what the Benjamin Franklin wanted for a bird? The turkey. That is right. And he's pretty right, you know. That's a, that's a face. Even though very few people have ever seen a wild turkey, I wonder how many have ever seen a wild e eagle. Well, I did. As a matter of fact, I saw a wild eagle here last year, and I'll never forget it. In fact, I've seen two wild eagles. I mean, being eagles. I don't mean sitting in a zoo someplace. I mean working eagles. And uh, in fact, uh, uh, I was uh, I was on the third hole of a golf course. Uh, at Marco Island, Florida, beautiful golf course down there. There's no nobody run, absolutely nobody. And I was on the third green, and uh, one of the, the guy I was with, a friend of mine, he was putting out. And gee, it was just beautiful, not a sound, and you can smell the ocean there. And uh, 
Yeah, that's the greatest, one of the greatest bird sanctuaries in the world is around there, by Naples, Florida. Tremendous. It's part of the Everglades, see. And all of a sudden, right down the middle of the fairway, and he flew right over the, the green, not more than 20, 25 feet above our heads, was this magnificent eagle. He just drifted right over. You could hear the wind going through his wing, just, just drifted right over and into the pine trees. Fantastic bird. And then, not uh, not more than two or three months later, I was on an, on an island uh, called Yuseppa Island, which is near Tampa Bay. It's actually near Fort Myers, off the west coast of Florida. And uh, it's a very remote island. In fact, nobody, you can't even get there unless uh, you have a certain boat and so on and have to know how to get there. And it's an old pirate island. Actually, uh, it was a, a pirate hangout. And there's nothing on there except this one place, this one house, and uh, I was walking around there, this little island, and there on a tree right ahead of me was a was a knocked off uh, top of a of a pine tree, an old dead pine tree. The top was knocked off. Was this huge nest? And standing up in the nest was the most magnificent bald eagle, tremendous bald eagle, not an osprey, a bald eagle, just standing there, looking around, big hooked beak. And I walked right up to it. I was about maybe eight or nine feet from it. Just stood there and looked at it. Bird didn't move, just looked. And I stood there a couple of minutes, cursing the fact I didn't have any camera or anything. You know, here, here's a, how many people are going to see a bald eagle you know, on its nest? And uh, it just uh, sitting there. And then uh, all of a sudden, the eagle got uh, a little nervous. And there were clouds floating over this beautiful, idyllic day when all of a sudden he just took off, just <laughs> tremendous flapping of wings. And he glided up. He just took off. They, they, you know, they, they're, uh, they've got a heavy body for its wing spread. He has to take a lot of flapping to get up, you know. And he, he got up. And once they get up, boy, they fly beautifully. They have this, this magnificent uh, upturned wing tip. And uh, he just sort of glided way down this hill. There was a hill that went down to a bay below. And there was a big sailboat in the bay down there. And he just drifted down over the, over the scrub pines and out over the water, and he just crossed the bay, and I saw this bird disappear on the other side of the spit of land. I thought, what a fantastic bird. But uh, it's certainly not a typical bird. I mean, you can't, you, can't uh, you know, call it a typical bird. Now, if you're going to take a bird for its typicalness, I mean, that's one thing. You'd have to probably take a sparrow, you know. I've often thought that the, the you know, that uh, what we should have for a national symbol is the cocker spaniel. I mean, that's so American, you know, weeping, always wants to be loved. And, uh, yeah, that's so typical of Americans, you know, wants to be loved. There where it goes, wags its tail all over the place, and you pet it on its head, and it wets on the floor and all that, you know. This is a, a, <laughs> a real a real American-type dog. Uh, <laughs> on the other hand, you know, uh, the, I, I must say, though, I, I have to agree with them that the, that the bluebird is not a good bird for the state of New York. Now, it may be all right for other states, but not New York. No, no. Uh, quite possibly the electric eel might be a, <laughs> you know, a good animal. <laughs> have you ever thought of, of having a state animal? You know, certain states have an animal. Uh, how, how many of you can tell me what the state flower of New York is? I'll give you one clue. We, we, we chickened out there. We didn't make it crabgrass, which, uh, you know, would have been great. I, uh, to me, uh, this is <laughs> just the kind of stuff I plump for. There's nothing wrong with crabgrass, you know. 
it uh, just, you know, just a little crabby here and there, but uh, nevertheless, uh, what what is the state flower of uh, New York? You know, if you if you were to think of if you were to think of a, of a typical scene of New York, uh, to put on the seal, you know how they have a, a, a like a, a section of the countryside on the seal. For example, you go out to certain states like California, and they have this seal that shows the sun and beautiful thing. You know, you see the mountains; it's on the seal. And uh, what, what, what do you think the New York seal looks like? I'll tell you what we ought to have in bas-relief, you know, all carved out of, out of uh, bronze. A scene at 527 on the Long Island Expressway. See? <laughs> Stretching to, into the distance, you see. This is it. And, and, and in the distance, you have this symbolic cloud of smog drifting up. You know, it's all carved out of, out of beautiful bas-relief. And underneath it, it has the... You know, the New York State slogan, in hoc agricola conch, in est spittle lauk. And, uh, you know, it would be kind of beautiful and truthful. That's what we want to do. We want to start, you know, have a little truth around here. By the way, you know what country has the absolute worst traffic jams? It is not New York. Absolutely not. Get ready with that record that I had in there, that, that great old record. The one, hold it there, and I'll give, you a, I'll give you the cue now. What would you guess? Well, we just have a, a report. Now, I want you to listen to this because it's a sickening story, really a sickening story. If you, if you, uh, you know, spend much of your life on the Long Island Expressway or on Route 22, I want you to listen to this. Please bring it in big. No, 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 the other one. No, 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 no. Sorry, Herb. It's the other, it's the other record. The first one I gave you. The, fr- the one you brought up with the Scott record. There, that's it. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. You get it set up. All set in there? Here we go. Oh, yeah, Roma. Ah, Roma. Beautiful, bellissimo, Roma. Ah, Ah, yeah, Roma. Four times a day, six days a week, in Roma, Ben-Hur rides again. Down the hill by the baths of Caracalla, past the circular sweep of the Colosseum, Around the monster marble, Victor Emmanuel, known as the typewriter. Through the narrow gates and the ancient Roman walls. Over the old stone bridge, arching the Tiber. In and out the cobblestone squares and the magnificent splashing fountains. Dodging naked statues, past the Barocco churches. Threading by the ruins, under the low arches of the crumbling aqueducts. Into the incredibly winding, crowded streets. Up the cramped alleyways, horns blowing, mufflers whining, ambulances clanging, pedestrians scattering, police whistles blasting, taxis bleeding, buses blocking, fumes rising, oaths flying. Cretino, Cretino, out of my way, Cretino. Uvo Petrofato, Uvo Petrofato, translated, you rotten egg, you cretin, you. Cretino. Rush hour in Rome, uh, a nightmare out of Fellini with the incidental dialogue by Norman Mailer. There is nothing like it anywhere else in the world. Motion without movement, madness without method, Dante's basest basement, a hell, peopled only by machines, suffocating in a ceaseless, surrealistic snarl. One a fiato after another piled up in a gigantic pyramid, a cacophonous, a chaos, Dante's eighth inner circle. Yes, other cities around the globe, we said that, other cities around the globe have two rush hours, morning and evening, 
Roma. Are you ready? Has four full-blown rush hours. At midday, the merchants shutter their shops. Banks close their windows. Offices draw their blinds. And everyone heads home. And a vast... They got a great word for it, because it really, it really fits it. A vast ingorgio. 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 That's their word for traffic jam. For their three-hour siesta. And then, relaxed and renewed with a little red to wine. Vino. Everyone heads back downtown again, engulfing the city in a smothering volcanic traffic flow that seldom ever moves faster than three miles an hour. We quote here, it's the madness, utter madness, says Luigi Qualia, traffic engineer for the Automobile Club of Italy. In a city, this is a village, really, a village, in less than, it's a, it's such a ridiculous. This old, this little city, people are everywhere. Cars on the sidewalks, every place. The cars are going in and out of the basements, every place. It's a terrible... He says, we have a three million people. However, we have a five million motor vehicle trips a day in and out of Roma. What do we do? It's ridiculous. Fantastic. Can you imagine that? Figured out there's three million people living in the city of Rome, and there are five million motor vehicle trips a day in and out of Rome. And now, if you know anything about Rome, all these little streets are about the width of this table here. <laughs> Unbelievable. And, and uh, you know, you always have this idea of Rome. I'll never forget, I arrived in Rome. The first time I arrived in Rome was a beautiful night. We got in about, uh, oh, quarter after 12. And I walked out into the streets from this little hotel, and I walked down through the squares. And it's just absolutely magnificent. It's like a set. And, and you can just feel a Da Vinci there. You can, it's all there, you know, Michelangelo, everything. It just, it just feels like you've stepped back a thousand years, maybe two, three thousand. Beautiful. And you see the, the fountains at night. They work, you know, and the water's going up and a few people walking around. What a magnificent city. And so I walked around and I said, this is unbelievable, just beautiful. And I walked all night. I spent like eight hours just walking, and the dawn came up over the Tiber. You could see it coming up over the hills. Oh, fantastico. And then all of a sudden, just without any warning, suddenly it was fantastically transformed. It was like Vesuvius has exploded again, and out of it has come fiatos. Millions of fiatos. Tupolino, little fiata. Millions and millions of little Peugeots, Renaults, Fiatos, all over, bicycles, motorcycles, Vespas, Lambrettas, millions of people screaming and yelling, the buses, and I was caught in the middle of this thing for hour upon hour. Yeah. In Gorgio, in the Gorgio. <laughs> I like that. Come on, let's keep playing that. Come on. Yeah, have a time to do the Yeah. no, All right, bring it up big guy. Jump the tilt so much. 
Oh, just be calm, friend. Listen, I want to tell you, in the middle of that traffic jam, I got stuck in a bus. And it was a lady hanging on me with three babies in her arms. And we had gone seven blocks, and we were so squashed together that by the end of the fifth block, she thought I was her husband. And she kept talking to me in, in, uh, <laughs> in Sicilian Italian and blowing garlic all over me. And, of course, you pick up Italian very quickly in Italy, you know. And I kept saying, buono, 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 no, 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 waving my hands, no, 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 no. Which is uh, Italian for get off my back, baby. I don't have any time for this. Come on, let's throw up on the table. Vino. <laughs> Isn't that a great record? Tarantella. Siciliano. Palermo. Oh, statistico. Yeah. Realissimo. Federico Fellini. All right. Take it in there, Jay. Tonight's program was produced by Carlos de la Ponte. Evenings at 6.45 on WOR, Stan Lomax with a complete rundown of the day's activities and sports. Stay tuned now for Lester Smith and the news. This is Joanne Woodward. If you think some land should be left undisturbed by man,